Welcome back, Peas in a Pause listeners. This is David Rayburn, one of your hosts. And for the third time, we have Dr. Tyler Severance here with us. Welcome back, Dr. Severance. Hey, thanks. I feel like now I'm becoming a true friend of the pod. Um, good third, to be back. Good to talk. Third time's a charm, something like that. Yeah. If you want, I'll allow it. You can give a shout out to your listeners out in LA since you have a fan base out there. Yeah, I, I got some feedback uh, very urgently from some old uh, old friends from medical school that were out in LA and listening and heard my voice on the podcast and were sufficiently terrified and had to let me know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, for those of you who haven't listened to our first two segments on oncologic emergencies and then the second segment on leukemia lymphoma, please do that. If this is your first time listening, Dr. Severance is a hematology oncology fellow here at Indiana University and Riley Hospital for Children. So again, we appreciate him uh, being on here with us. We are going to talk about solid tumors for this section here. Yes, um, and I'm, I'm glad you're giving a shout-out to, to solid tumors. Um, again, we think of hematology, oncology in general. I know it's only about 2.5% on the boards. Uh, for some of you out there, that may be too much, um, but after this podcast, you guys are going to crush it. So there will be like essentially three points. Um, Always our goal, get you those three points. So in that, in that note, um, I think it's very reasonable to start with neuroblastoma, and The reason I think it's important to start here is in terms of overall incidence in childhood, it is the most common extracranial solid tumor in children, but in Bordsylvania, it is preposterously common. Um, Some of these scholarly folks would say it is quite high yield. Um, The reason why is neuroblastoma can present is a million different ways, and you will never get it unless you're actively thinking about it. And so whether it's a child presenting with, with the raccoon eyes or bone pain or um, you know, we, had, we could get mediastinal mass and compression, there's a secretory component, there's so many different ways that neuroblastoma can present and they're just waiting for you to reach out, take that next diagnostic step, get that point and move on to the next question. I'm fine with that, that's how I would like to do it. So, so with that note, um, again, a little bit on the pathophysiology of neuroblastoma. Um, this is going to be, this is your cancer that essentially is a, a dysregulation of the sympathetic nervous system, renegade replication of these cells. Um, so it can arise anywhere along the, symp- the, the, the sympathetic nervous system chain, and that includes the adrenal gland. So at least a third, if not more, um, have an adrenal origin. Um, the... This is usually a cancer of early childhood. So this typical patient presentation is going to be five years old or younger. Um, and then if you're, um, if you're seeing patients that are older than that, it's usually a pretty negative prognostic sign. Um, and again, very common both in real life and on the boards. The, the general distribution um, of metastases is why it is so variable and how it presents. Um, if you have just an adrenal mass, that's the patient that is going to present with uh, a worried parent that said, hey, you know, I was giving my child a bath. I felt this mass in the, or this weird thing in the belly. Can you take a look at it? Um, usually it happens around 2 to 3 in the morning. And it's almost always in bath time. And I think it's because kids are super relaxed in the bathtub. But alas, there, there's going to be a mass there um, if it's sufficiently large. I've seen it cause obstruction before. Um, so be wary that this can be one of those obstructive processes um, where can it spread? The answer is everywhere. Um, it can spread to the bones, um, especially the bone marrow space. Um, so you can get 
those bony mets are expanding and taking over, that can lead to a lot of pain. Um, so again, we think of gait instability or you know refusing to walk, um, very sensitive to touch. Um, it can uh, it can lead to fractures if it's invading the true cortex and the structure of the bone. Um, it can spread up into the periorbital space, leading to the, that raccoon eyes, that classic presentation. Um, dear listeners out there, that is worth Googling if you haven't seen it before. Because we'll put it on the Twitter as well. Perfect. So that's, again, definitely worth having a picture in your mind of what that looks like, just so you're getting those free points. Uh, another classic, classic location is if you're getting mediastinal compression. Uh, it can lead to Horner syndrome, um, so be on the lookout there. And then just as a few other long shot characteristics, um, it can lead to the secretion of that VIP, uh, leading to secretory diarrhea. It can also lead to opsoclonus myoclonus ataxia syndrome, which is so cleverly named because it can lead to opsoclonus myoclonus and, and ataxia. That is correct. Um, just, just to let you know, thanks for that, because the next shift I'm on, if I have a kid that comes in with diarrhea, my first thought is that they're going to have that they have neuroblastoma. Thanks for that. Well, I say, and then the next board question that you see, you also get that one right as well. The um, once you're thinking neuroblastoma, once you see these types of findings, um, they may send you down the diagnostic evaluation pathway. Um, and so I think it's also worth highlighting some key points here. Um, usually you will be just absolutely inspired to get imaging. And so say you have an abdominal mass um, that can lead you to an ultrasound or on the boards, they actually like a CT scan. And the reason why is there's a classic finding. It's called stippled calcification. Buzzword. Please use the buzzword uh, chime there. And that's that's pretty pretty helpful indicator, and it can really clue you in and, and help connect the dots if you're having those that trouble. Um, I would make sure that a chest x-ray is part of your workup. Again, we mentioned the mediastinal effect. And so before you get too far along the process of, of getting pictures and or of, you know sedation and procedures, make sure you know that your airways are okay. Um, you will need labs and eventually a bone marrow biopsy. Um, among the labs, we talked a little bit about um, how it can invade the bone marrow space, so make sure you're getting a, a complete blood count with a differential. Make sure your, your blood and platelets are okay as well. Um, we've talked a little bit um, about some of the systemic signs and symptoms, but know that you can get increases in your, your urine catecholamines, your VMA, your HVA. Um, that's, again, more on my boards than probably the general peds, but it's at least worth having that in mind. And then we do like to get some type of... Uh, um, nuclear imaging. Um, so depending on how old the board question is, that could be either a PET scan to see if there's any active disease elsewhere. And there's actually an even more advanced series of imaging, um, MIB, MIBG scans. Um, and I would spell that out, but it is like way beyond me. Um, just know that we call it the notorious MIBG, and it can help us find, uh, help us find neuroblastoma that may be hiding elsewhere. Again, I want to emphasize this section one more time. Neuroblastoma is really important, and it's, it's important both in real life and on the boards. Um, know the overall presentation, that, and it's very, very scattered and, and variable. Um, I don't think they're going to hit you guys with treatment regimens. Essentially, for treatment, there are a million different things that are all somewhat effective. So we create these massive multi-tiered treatment plans that feature moderate-dose chemotherapy, surgery, um, high-dose stem cell transplant, we have radiation therapy, we have antibody therapy, um, there's you know, new targeted therapy models that are out there. They're, everything under the sun will throw it at a high-risk neuroblastoma. Um, 
and so I don't think they're going to get into the weeds too much there, and we can thus avoid doing the same. But it's probably going to be the imaging that you talked about, uh, and then also as far as some of the various types of neuroblastoma and what they cause. So mm-hmm. I think that's probably going to be more the the clinical or sorry, not clinical board relevant material. Correct. The, there's also if you'll if you'll allow me to go on a quick one minute story here. Um, there's a big debate in the past on whether we should be screening for neuroblastoma, um, especially since the urinary markers are pretty sensitive and specific, the urine VMA and HVA. Um, in Japan, they did a large study looking at this, and they essentially screened a whole bunch of people. They found a dramatically increased incidence in neuroblastoma, but they saw no change in their overall uh, mortality. And so what they realized is that there's a number of neuroblastomas that present early in life that actually regress and go away on their own. A lot of these low-risk neuroblastomas, and we would have no way of knowing about them if we weren't screening. And so a lot of the lower-risk ones that haven't spread anywhere, that are in the right age range, um, pretty small, we'll just observe those and let them give them the chance to resolve on their own. And so know that they may try to get into that because that was a pretty important uh, monument to the literature that happened, but essentially what we do is we are not changing our practice. We are not screening for neuroblastoma as a routine thought. Much like the majority of the literature is, it's fascinating to read, but not really practice changing. Correct. Uh, For better or for worse. All right. Um, So I think that covers uh, neuroblastomas. Should we move on to Wilms tumors since we're Uh going to stay in the belly? Yes. Let's let's make that transition. what they want you to know for the for Wilms tumor, um, essentially they want you to know the clinical findings, a little bit of pathophysiology. Um, this is a, a disease that arises out of renal tissue. Um, it's, in other countries, they call it a nephroblastoma, uh, nephro meaning kidney, uh, one of the more common cancers of childhood. So it's at least worth keeping an eye out for. This is typically going to be an infant or a young child. Younger age is going to tend to favor the bilateral presentation, whereas older is going to be tend to be more unilateral. They will almost always present as a newly discovered mass. Surprise, surprise, it's almost always going to present at bath time, and they'll present to the ED between 2 and 3 a.m., right when it's the busiest. Um, There's a couple associations that are worth knowing to get you a point. Um, Hypertension and hematuria, and so I don't know if those are quite considered buzzwords. They're almost buzzwords. Um, So I I would just know that that's something you need to keep in mind. Essentially, you're going to, your exam's going to find that mass. It's going to lead you to imaging. The, the prognosis for patients with a Wilms tumor is very broad. If it's unilateral and small and you get it all out on the first pass with favorable genetics, it's going to have a great prognosis. If it's bilateral, metastatic, you know, poor tumor markers, that's going to be a much tougher prognosis. All the bad words all in one, one sentence there. Correct. Now where you can really knock this out of the park. And again, dear listeners, this is to get you that perfect score on your boards. It's worth knowing the associations. And there's a few of these. Uh, I would emphasize for sure the Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome and the Wagger syndrome. Uh, Supposedly, Dennis Drash is on there too, but I don't recall coming across that in my board studying. But Beckwith-Wiedemann, for sure, you need to know that there's an increased risk of Wilms tumor in patients with with that syndrome. And the W in Wagger stands for Wilms tumor. You are correct. So just, again, highlight that. That is definitely high yield. Uh, so just keep those things on your radar. You'll get these points for sure. Uh, you'll laugh and, and rejoice in your conquest of this question, and then you'll move on to the next one.
On to the next one. Speaking of which, brain tumors? Yeah, so brain tumors. So I want to emphasize again, I am not a neuro-oncologist. And if you were to talk to one, they would give you a very in-depth, passionate view on brain tumors. Spoiler alert, we are not going to have a neuro-oncologist on the podcast. Thank you. I think that this is a very important topic for them to know and digest and process. I think for our boards, the, the relevance is much more limited. What you need to know is you need to know the clinical findings and how they present, and you'll need to know the next steps in workup. The, in general, brain tumors present in the brain. And so you're, if you think about an enlarging mass in the brain, you're going to have a couple pretty clear signs and symptoms. If it's causing an obstruction or a mass effect or an enlarging space, you're going to get that nausea, headache, vision change, the... Those are going to be pretty clear, especially if these are signs and symptoms that are occurring or progressing, uh, despite, you know, common symptoms. So nausea that doesn't get better with Zofran, you know, you need to start opening up your thoughts and, and considering these. The, uh, the mass effect, you can start to get specific focal motor defects. So if you see, you know, gradual onset, or onset of weakness in certain parts of the body, um, I've said gait instability a million times as we in our podcast discussions, but that should be a big trigger for you. The the other ones that are important to recognize is seizures. Um, I know that you're you guys probably cover first time seizures elsewhere in in the beautiful podcast world, but know that when you're getting images and you're finding a, a mass in a patient with a seizure like that, that can be your ticket into a neuro oncology process. But if I could highlight the high yield stuff, be wary of the increased intracranial pressure. Watch out for the kid with nausea, vomiting, and a relentless headache. Uh, watch out for the child with the blatant neuro defects. Um, watch out for the patient that has a new diagnosis of, or new onset seizures that just came out of nowhere. And watch for the associations with defects and things like the vision pathway. And get pictures. Yes. Um, get high-quality pictures. MRI is going to be your, your ticket here. I would emphasize, again, and this is – for a little bit of debate, but you're going to want an MRI, head and spine, get the whole thing, make sure you're not missing anything. The, the common places that you should know to look, be sure you're checking out the brain stem, be sure you're looking for um, the optic pathways. There it's, it's not uncommon for tumors to hide in those, in those places, and they can be pretty subtle. As a gentle shout out, you can also get tumors arising in the pituitary, and so that can lead to some broader uh, systemic findings, the, the pan-hypopituitary syndromes. Uh, and so you can start to get changes there. Again, usually it'll be another pathway from another discussion that you guys will probably have. Uh, keep tuning into the pod, which will eventually lead to your brain imaging and it'll get you your answer. Uh, so the key, imaging, imaging, imaging. And then I keep going back to this, but we talked about um, oncology emergencies um, several months ago. And... If you do have a, a patient where you're having a true emergency, the answer is going to be steroids. And what steroids can do is that can buy you time. So if your mass effect is so profound, whether it's in the head or in the, the spinal column, that you're having serious life-threatening or limb-threatening or, or spinal cord-threatening symptoms, you can give whopping doses of steroids. It'll be dexamethasone. You can buy yourself some time while you're getting your neurosurgery colleagues involved, while you're calling the neuro-oncologist, while you're getting everything together. Um, so just keep that in your back pocket if you're truly practicing out on an island somewhere and you need to buy yourself some time. Steroids it is for that case. That's probably the only time I'm going to say that. <laughs> All right. Um, should we move on to bone and soft tissue? 
Yeah, that's a good segue. These are also fairly high yield, and it's these things are just they're just the nemesis of of pediatricians everywhere because the the imaging changes can be very subtle, but the diseases are pretty dramatic. For the sake of this debate, we're talking about osteosarcomas and Ewing sarcomas, and so know that those are two different entities that often get lumped together. The clinical findings and features, uh, we'll start with just a general osteosarcoma. So these bad boys, they're usually going to occur in the metaphyseal regions of long bones. Um, they can be painful. I feel like each of the ones I've diagnosed, they're actually pretty palpable too, and so they're, they're not subtle, they're not hiding, and patients are usually pretty annoyed that you're, you're pushing on them. Hence the importance of physical exam. Correct. Exam, exam, exam. Uh, compared to, if we think about the Ewing sarcoma, these are usually, those tumors are usually going to affect the diaphysis of long bones and flat bones. Um, there's a little bit more prevalence to things like the ribs and the pelvis. Um, those patients are usually going to have more of the systemic symptoms. So if you see fever, weight loss, I tend to lean more towards a Ewing sarcoma. And so I think that's important to, to keep in mind. The, the key is going to be the imaging. And so you're going to have a low threshold to image these patients. That's going to get you started. And I can tell you how I remembered it. The, the osteosarcoma is going to have the sunburst pattern. So os, O-S, sunburst. Um, so that's how I remembered it. And then the Ewing sarcoma has an onion peeling effect. And so I think, ew, ew, an onion, you Ewings. I was thinking the Ewing is peeling. That also works Whatever you got to do to, to remember it, right? Yeah, there's, there's no good way, but actually, who am I kidding? Those are both good ways. The, the key is that if you know that imaging buzzword, that's oftentimes that's all you're going to need to know to get you the point. Buzzword. Perfect. Thank you. The, the, there's a couple things out there that are a little bit more benign, and so they might try to trip you up with something like an osteoid osteoma. Um, these are... These are just boring, I'll be totally honest. So these are the benign tumors that can affect pediatric patients, you know, age 5 to 20. Um, these are the patients that are going to have this pain that is relentless, gradually worsening, although not necessarily tender, and so that can be a little bit of a distinction. Um, they're going to try some over-the-counter pain meds, which are going to make it better. They're going to give you some plain films on your, in your board land question, and what you'll see is it'll be a round metaphyseal lucency and surrounding sclerotic bone, and that's going to be the source of their pain. Um, the reason it's boring is because as an oncologist, we don't deal with those. Um, that is very much, call our lovely, delightful colleagues at Ortho, they will get to cut it out, and then you will call it a day. So call Ortho, cut it out, call it a day. Moving on. Um, the sites of metastasis for these malignant bone tumors is important. Um, I'm going to just throw a little shout out of caution that a lot of these cancers can metastasize pretty readily to the lungs. And that's actually plays a really big role in prognosis. If you think of something like osteosarcoma, if you diagnose it and it's a local process, their prognosis can be upwards of 70%. Um, if it's metastatic, then it gets much tougher. And then you're starting to get into the 20 to 30% long-term survival. I can pause just briefly to talk about the overall treatment umbrella because I think it's helpful to frame that in your mind. With solid tumors like this, your treatment is going to have multiple points of focus. The first is almost no matter what you do, you need a local control. For osteosarcoma, that is almost universally a surgery to cut it out. You can either cut out the actual tumor, you can cut off the limb. Um, that's going to be your, your local mechanism to, to take it away. 
For things like Ewing sarcoma, it's radiosensitive, so sometimes radiation can act as your local control, uh, but know that that is a critical step. The other thing that you do is systemic chemotherapy. And so our chemotherapy options are okay in these types of cancers, uh, but they're not perfect. A lot of times what we'll do is we will start with chemotherapy if if the cancer is not so severe that it requires immediate surgery. So we'll start with maybe one to two months of chemotherapy, then we'll move forward with our local control, either the resection, the radiation, and then we will hit it with even more chemotherapy after that. And so as you're building a timeline of how the treatment works, know that that's that's where our mind goes. I don't think they'll ask you guys about specific drugs. Um, Again, that's uh, that's more on my plate. And then finishing out the board specs, they want you to know the appropriate diagnostic referral for a patient with malignant bone tumors, Um, As much as we love to work them out up in our oncology clinic, tissue is always going to be the issue. So make sure you're getting the sample. Uh, So calling, usually it's ortho or general surgery for a biopsy. And then once you have your tissue, we can come up with a good game plan as a collaborative, multidisciplinary team to to conquer childhood cancer. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. I think we got a couple more things that we want to highlight here. Um, Probably less or lower yield, rather, uh, histiocytosis. Yeah, so I I always chuckle because the because Bordsylvania, the classic town, they they actually group histiocyte syndromes all together, which is just comical because they really they're they're very very distinct and unique. And the two diseases that we refer to are um, LCH. Uh, Langerhans cell histiocytosis, and then HLH, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. And they are just totally opposite spectrums of the universe. Um, LCH, it's not ultra common, but there's a couple high yield points that are going to get you the question right so you can move on. Uh, the, for LCH, this is going to be a patient presenting at any age with basically this, these renegade you know, histiocytic, these Langerhans cells causing destruction in the local tissue. Um, The classic scenario is going to be either they'll give you the scalp or diaper dermatitis, um, the seborrheic rash with a patient who's getting what you would think would be appropriate therapy. They're getting all the tubes and creams and stuff, and it's not going away. They they may give you chronic ear drainage or chronic mastoiditis. And then the secret ninja high-yield point is that if you know that there is an association with LCH and diabetes insipidus, So if you're getting a patient with polyuria, be wary that LCH is known to to cause that that specific activation. And so I say secret ninja because that's like, that's going to get you guys the perfect score. You'll come back, you'll be very grateful for peds in a pod, and then a year or two later you'll be a guest on this show as well. (laughs) The the next steps, um, that that classic question style, um, it's also relevant for for these questions. Um, You're going to ultimately push these patients towards getting a biopsy. The two buzzwords to know after that is you need to recognize that CD207 or Langerin uh, or CD1A, uh, those things will stain positive. And then, of course, buzzword, the electron microscopy will show Beerbeck granules. Um, And I'm told there's no association with Beerbeck being named after beer, uh, but that has not been proven or disproven. Uh, and again, that's the classic tennis racket-like appearance. And by golly, if they're showing you a picture of, a, of an electron microscopy image off of a biopsy and a board question, then number one, good luck. But number two, you're going to get it right because you're going to know it's a beer back granule for LCH. Love it. Um, they probably won't ask you about treatment. It's highly variable. But these things are sensitive to chemo, surgery, and radiation. All right. Perfect. And then HLH to contrast that. Yeah. So this is another interesting one. And I... 
depending on who you talk to, it's not technically a cancer. Uh, so at least in our institution, this is actually treated by the hematology team rather than the oncology team. This is going to be renegade activation of the immune system. And I, I don't like the definitions that are more specific than that. I want you to think of this as your body's immune system is going absolutely berserk. Uh, there are nine criteria that make up this diagnosis, but really you're going to start to assume this is happening when you see a child that is sick. And so they may have come in for pneumonia. They may have come in for um, you know an undiagnosed, or say this is the first sign of a leukemia that you're seeing. Something is going to happen that's going to trigger their immune system to just go off the rails. And so among the nine criteria, we want five. Those nine are fever, splenomegaly, uh, cytopenia, and I technically requires two or more cell lines to be affected, increased triglycerides or hypofibrinogenemia, and it can be either one of those counts the criteria, hemophagocytosis that's picked up on a biopsy from either your bone marrow, your spleen, or a lymph node, uh, decreased NK cell activity, Increased ferritin, and I'm going to put a shout out, it won't be subtle. It'll be it's like increased, yeah. yeah. And then increased soluble IL-2, um, which is usually a send out for most institutions. And so usually the, the way this teases out in practice is we begin to suspect it. So we'll send a few of the easier ones, such as a ferritin, triglycerides, fibrinogen, and they'll just be bonkers abnormal. And then we'll start to talk about, do we need to do a biopsy here? Do we need to get tissue sample? Should we send the NK function testing, um, the IL-2? And so usually those act as a screening or a gateway, but that's then not technically Then I consult my hematologist, oncologist, and then they come up with this plan for me. Yeah, and the reason it's under this category, um, we actually treat, the, treat them twofold. Number one, you want to take care of the underlying cause, what triggered this, and then the other thing is going to be chemotherapy. So usually it's something that's based around steroids and etoposide um, for first line, and then these patients actually have been known to get transplant if it's refractory or, um, or if this becomes a recurrent process. So we have transplanted these patients before, and that's something that probably not as relevant on the boards, but just for your, your knowledge, we treat these very seriously. The morbidity and mortality can be high. Uh, these patients get really sick. All right. Well, that's very good. So, all right, and I think we're just going to round things out with some miscellaneous solid tumors uh, that are probably fairly low yield, but maybe just have a, a couple buzzwords or keywords that we can think of. Certainly. Um, and so, again, we, we've covered the high ones by incidence and the ones that are important to know for the general practitioner. Uh, a lot of these other ones, again, lower yield, but technically they're worth keeping in the back of your mind. Germ cell tumors are one of them. Remember, uh, gonadal um, genesis in the, during development can happen along a number of different spots. And so really a germ cell tumor is one that arises from, from primordial germ cells that can happen anywhere from the, the gonads all the way up to the brain and anywhere in between. Um, the, clinically, you're going to get an enlarging mass. Uh, there's a couple labs that are associated with this. Uh, the classic one is going to be AFP, uh, alpha-fetoprotein. It's, it's usually not subtle. It's usually sky high. Uh, it typically comes from the yolk sac component of these tumors. Another one to watch out for, beta HCG. The, I'm, I'm sure you actually use that in a different, different lines of uh, evaluation for your patients, but know that those can be abnormal. That would push you, push you towards getting oncology evolved sooner rather than later. There's a lot of different avenues we can pursue for treatment. And I say this out loud because our institution, especially our adult, our adult colleagues, are quite famous for pioneering new therapies in germ cell tumors. Um, so please send them our way. We're, we're happy to work that up. Another 
lower yield oncology process retinoblastomas. Really, this is going to be a patient where you're doing those uh, those eye exams in the newborn period. Please, please, please make sure you're doing those both on the boards and in real life. If you're starting to see changes, that whitening change to the retina, uh, these are patients that are going to need a referral. The A lot of the treatment and things like that, they're just so low yield, I don't think they're going to test you guys on that. The other things that we should at least highlight, hepatoblastoma, um, liver tumors. So unlike in adults where a lot of the, the liver cancers are associated with chronic infections and underlying disease, um, pediatric hepatoblastomas are more, more random in nature. Again, these are patients that are almost universally going to have a surging AFP, a very enlarged liver mass. Treatment is going to be some form of chemotherapy and local control. And the local control, if it's small, will be to cut it out. And if it's large, they usually need a liver transplant. The outcomes for this are getting better and better every year, um, thanks to some incredible work across the country. But just know for hepatoblastoma, do a great liver exam, um, check your labs, check your imaging. That'll send you in the right direction. And I think that pretty much covers the gist of things. There's there's other tumors out there that are that are just so uncommon that I don't think that they'll they'll pop up on your boards. Technically, pediatric patients can get skin cancers. I think I've seen one melanoma in my in my in my short career so far. Um, and usually, we just pull our therapies and our treatment guidelines from adult papers. The there's there's a couple other uh, we didn't really highlight a ton of the rhabdomyosar- rhabdomyosarcomas. Um, but again, these are these are pretty straightforward. You're going to get a tissue biopsy. You're going to give these patients chemotherapy, local controls, either a surgery or radiation, and then you're going to follow it long term with even more chemotherapy. The Really, the gist of it is, are, are pretty much all covered in there. And then just to put a brief little shout out, you do need to know a little bit in terms of survivor care or care of cancer survivors. There are some long-term side effects of chemotherapy that weren't truly addressed in the board specs, but I remember seeing one question about it. The The highlights is that you know in patients that are getting highly toxic therapy, they may have long-term risks of, of heart disease. We talk about donorubicin and doxorubicin. Um, those patients are at risk for long-term heart disease. We talk about drugs like cisplatinum and, and other, you know, cyclophosphamide, ifosfamide. Some of those drugs can have long-term effects on, on fertility. And so there's new and emerging data that says that we can do a better job of addressing oncology and fertility. We're working on that as an oncology community, but just, I would say, as a general practitioner, know that your patients may be at risk for um, long-term infertility issues um, if they're getting high-dose chemotherapy. And then finally, I want to emphasize this because I tell this to our patients when they're diagnosed, and I think it's worth it for, worthwhile for other uh, providers to know, but if you have been diagnosed with a cancer and you received high-dose systemic chemotherapy, you are actually at increased risk of secondary malignancies, especially compared to the general population. And so if you have a patient that's, say, 9, 10 years off therapy, even though they're, that, they're far removed and they're not likely to have relapse, they may still be at higher risk for other chemotherapies, whether that's leukemias, lymphomas. Um, one classic example is if a patient gets radiation therapy to the chest. So say a female gets radiation therapy to the chest, her long-term risk of breast cancer can be as high as 25%. And so these are not subtle numbers. We do want to make sure that it's not just ourselves and our survivor clinics that are monitoring, but also um, pediatricians and the primary care providers are, are being vil- or diligent in surveilling for those as well. So... Um, just keep those things in the back of your minds, and um, they, they, you know, may not show up on the boards, but uh, I think to be awesome doctors, which is 
maybe I guess we'll call it the secondary aim of this podcast. Uh, I think it's helpful to know those as well. As always, there is a little added clinical. We can't just focus on the boards, uh, especially since the boards are a little bit delayed on their questions. But that is some fantastic knowledge for our listeners, Dr. Severance. As always, we really appreciate your time and you being on the show with us. Uh, Dr. Rayburn, it's always a pleasure. Uh, So thanks for having me, and hopefully I get invited back someday soon. All right.